Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the You Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today, we present a session from You Lead 2019 with Richard Gerver. Richard has been described as one of the most inspirational leaders of his generation. He's an award winning speaker best-selling author, and world-renowned thinker. He began his career in education, most notably as head teacher of the failing Grange Primary School. In just two years, he famously transformed it into one of the most acclaimed learning environments in the world. He was celebrated by UNESCO and the UK government for its incredible turnaround. If you enjoyed this session, it's one of the many that ULEAD offers every year at our conference. Please join us this coming year in Banff. You can get more information and register at ulead.ca. Now here is Richard Gerver. Um, So what I thought I'd do is just spend five minutes giving you a little bit more background into me, because that might help crystallize what you'd like to know about. And then I'm just going to open the floor. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot is, as professionals, being prepared to take risks. And actually, if I'm honest, one of the easiest parts of my job is to be a keynote speaker because I'm in total control of what I'm going to say. And what I am passionate about is living what you say. And so standing up on a stage and telling people who are under enormous pressure and doing a real job day in, day out to take risks can look really crass and simple from somebody that kind of doesn't have to. So my only way of being able to do that today is by not having any slides, not having any pre-preparation and not knowing where this is going to go and say, I hope in some small, humble way, it says, look, I'm trying to understand if that makes sense. So if it goes disastrously wrong, just be teacherly with me. (laughs) Pat me on the head, tell me to go to the toilet and tell me I'll be fine at home time. All right. Um, So we'll see. So anyway, I'll just give you about five minutes. It might turn into more than that because I do love talking about myself. Um, So I won't go all the way back. But what I will do is tell you that most of my professional life have been a series of happy accidents. Um, When I was finishing my school education, I wanted to be an actor, right? And uh, the worst thing that could have happened to me happened because I got into rep theater in my last year of school. And I thought I was going to be Olivier. I didn't need any training because I was in repertory theater. What I realized very quickly was what you've probably all realized this morning is essentially I was rubbish at it. Um, so I had to rethink. I mean, it wasn't that I, I'm not sure, I just had no professional craft, right? It's like throwing somebody that could be a great teacher into a classroom without actually giving them any professional craft, right? It only takes you so far. And so I went to college eventually, much to my um, middle-class Jewish parents' uh, gratitude. You can imagine, can't you, when a middle-class Jewish boy turns around to his parents in London and goes, I'm going to be an actor. And they're thinking, no, you're going to be a lawyer or an accountant. You are not going to be. Anyway, I then said I was going back to college. They were very happy. I went back to college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I thought I wanted to work in the arts. And then everything changed. Because I met a young woman in my first year of my degree which was this kind of catch-all degree, right? And she was training to be a teacher. And I was a shallow, young man. And on our second or third date, I really wanted to impress this gorgeous young woman. So she was talking about teaching, and I did that thing that will be familiar to many of the women in the room. I did, I don't know how sincere it came, oh, teaching, that's amazing. Oh, I'd love to be a teacher. Anyway, my wife being from North Yorkshire, which is a pretty hardcore part of the UK, wasn't going to take this crap. But she kind of let it lie. Okay, and when I finished my degree, she held me to it. She said, do you remember when we started dating, you told me how brilliant teaching was? I said, yes. She said, well, I've just enrolled you on a postgraduate teaching program. So there. Um, anyway, it must have worked because we're coming up to our 26th wedding anniversary next month. So it's all gone okay. And God knows how she's put up with me, but there you go. And I, so I stumbled into teaching by accident. But I've got to tell you, and this is true, the first time I walked into a classroom, and I'm sure some of you had this feeling. So I wasn't one of those kids that grew up, oh, I just want to be a teacher. But the first time I walked into a classroom, I honestly, for the first time in my life, felt I belonged. 
I'd found my place. You know how many of us go through, we all do it and we go through, I'm not really sure. A lot of people go through, they don't know what their play, and suddenly I was just blessed because I walked into a classroom for the first time with a group of elementary school kids and I just knew. So I've got a lot to thank that young woman for, as well as our kids and all the rest. But you know what I mean? That was a special moment, right? And then I became a teacher like we all do. And I loved it. And I just immersed myself in teaching. And that's all I wanted to be. And then a series of happy accidents occurred. I was, after a few years, I I became a, a, a vice principal in a small primary school. And I was seconded by the local government to design a program to remotivate demotivated boys in reading and writing. And as part of that job, I was asked to go and gather a few target schools to get them on the program. And I walked into one, no desire to be a school principal. I walked into one elementary school, quite large, in um, a socially deprived urban environment in the middle of the UK, about 600 students. And for the second time in my professional life, I fell in love with this place. And I can't describe to you why, because the school was a mess. It was such a mess, actually, that as you know, um, our system's a federally controlled system, it's centrally controlled. At the time, the then government had decided that our school was so bad and had been habitually for 10 years that they were on the verge of shutting it down, sacking everybody, launching a new school and rebranding it. I mean, why that would work? So suddenly we got a new badge. It's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be a great school now. But anyway, the only person that didn't know that that's what, that was the government's plan was me. So I rock up to it because I fell in love with the, I can't tell you, you know, like when you go house hunting and you can see 10 houses and the floor plan looks exactly the same and they all look pretty similar inside, but you walk into one and suddenly you just know it's home. It was that, right? So I applied and got the job, not because, and I was quite young to be a school principal in the UK. I'd just turned 30. So I was, I was, I was a young guy and it wasn't because I was a genius. The only reason I got the job was because I was the only one that didn't know. And I was the only applicant. That's true. Now, all I'm saying to you is, it's bad enough if you apply for the job and you don't get it because somebody else does. Can you imagine not getting a job when you're the only? What that would have done to my self-esteem, frankly, would have been the end, right? Anyway, you might not want me to talk about the school a bit more, so we'll leave that up. But just to say, I took on this school um, and it turned out to be the greatest seven and a half years of my life. It changed everything again for me. Um, It was a remarkable community and a remarkable story. All I will tell you is the school didn't shut down. And actually, after two years, we won the UNESCO World Education Award. And we went in with, uh, within two years, we were in the bottom 3% of schools in the UK. And within two years, we were in the top 1%. Um, Right, that wasn't me. I now make a living going around the world telling everybody it was, but it wasn't me. Um, And then... The hardest decision in my professional life happened at the end of that seven and a half year journey. Because what inevitably happens when you start to run a famous school is everybody wants a slice, right? And people started asking me to go and talk about it a lot. And it was my wife, actually, and my mentor, a man many of you will know, who I was very fortunate enough to know before he became the global rock star. Um, Ken Robinson. So Ken was my mentor when I was running the school. Um, I know, name drop again. Who cares about Obama? (laughs) Ken Robinson. By the way, just so that you know, later, wasn't just the hand we hugged. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, they both said to me, it's time to leave. My wife, because she said, we never see you. Because you're either traveling around telling everybody about what the school does or you're catching up on the job you should be doing. And Ken, because he said, honestly, you're the practical embodiment of some of what I've spoken about. I didn't know that, and I'm hugely hugely humbled, because when I first met Ken, I didn't know who Ken was, really. But now people go, my God, Ken Robinson, because now he's Ted Ken, right? Um, But to me, he's just a professional father. Anyway, they both told me to leave, and I left. And that was the hardest decision of my life, because I loved my job. I didn't leave because I was... uh, uh, you know, over it. I, I didn't leave because I was exhausted by it. I left because, and uh, this is the truth, right? So both of them had been trying to convince me for a long time. And by the way, how courageous must my wife have been to say, yeah, give up a really good job with a great salary and an amazing pension plan and go be self-employed. 
right? And I'll stay at home and raise our kids and be a school principal and hold down the proper job while you travel to places like Banff. It's why if you see me tweet any pictures of Banff, they will all look like it's raining and it's shit here because (laughs) I need her not to divorce me, okay? Um, So, but she did, what she said to me was profound because it was this thing, you know, going through the head and all the negatives and my God, but how do I make money and what happens, all that stuff. And she said, Richard, you have spent the best part of 20 years telling kids to take risks and seize opportunity. You could, this was her words, you could be a hypocrite and stay in a job you know you can do in a place you know that does it well. Or you could go and live their lives for a while and understand what that really means. That was a profound moment. Um, So I left. And over the last 11 years, as I kind of intimated um, in the keynote, it's been a remarkable journey. And as you've seen, I've had the opportunity to meet just mind-blowing people. Um, And another name joke, I won't tell you unless you want me to, so again, it's choice, right? One of the other people I've hung out with is the Dalai Lama. I know, I know, Ken Robinson, Obama, Dalai Lama. We're like a holy trinity, really. (laughs) The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and the hanger-on. Anyway, (laughs) I've met some amazing people. I'd have the privilege to work in extraordinary places, not just in education, but that passion that has grown in me in the last 11 years to learn from these multitude of different environments has just been the greatest opportunity of my life. How long it'll go on, I don't know. Because I have to confess with you, I live with what I think most people live with, which is imposter syndrome. And I don't think it matters who you are or how successful you are. If we're really honest with each other, everybody thinks they're one question away from being found out, right? Today could well be the day. Um, (laughs) But I don't know how long it'll last. And if the worst thing that happens to me is I go back to being a teacher again, my God, what a, what a second prize, right? Um, but I'm riding the wave right now. And, and my passion is that I've had the opportunity to share that with people. And I'll do it for as long as I can. So that's just a little potted history. So what I thought we'll do now is I'll just give you two minutes to reflect on what I've just said. Talk to somebody next to you. See if you can formulate something you'd like to know. It doesn't have to be a challenging question or a con- It could just be, could you tell us more about? Okay. And what we'll do then is I'll take as many of them as we can in the 50 or so minutes we've got together. Um, and then I'll be around for the rest of the day. So if you want to kick, punch, uh, hold my hand or hug me, that's all okay. Um, <laughs> uh, just don't tweet the picture. Um, so have a couple of minutes to chat and then we'll, we'll see where we go. We'll play jazz together. Okay. Let's see what happens. Have a couple of minutes to talk to each other. Okay. So. <laughs> If, uh, if you're one of the people that magnanimously has been persuaded by your colleagues to ask a question and you're a bit nervous about that, just imagine how I'm feeling right now. Let's see how this goes. Who's, uh, who's prepared to go? Thank you so much. So if you ask it, I'll kind of repeat it and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. So that thing really about can you transfer what you can do to an extent in an elementary school and repeat that in, not necessarily repeat it, but use the same principles in in a larger secondary environment. Um, By the way, my quick answer to you is leave, go back to elementary, seriously. (laughs) Come on, let's just be honest. But Look, I think this is a really important thing, and I think there's a number of issues here. And by the way, when I'm speaking here, I'm not criticizing. I just think this is the challenge, right? Um, For a lot of elementary schools, project working, collaborative working, working across skills and knowledge areas is kind of part of the process, right? Um, And it's inherently part of what we do. And I also think, as I said in the keynote, you know, focusing on the whole child's development is something that is culturally expected with really young kids. And then as we get older, we kind of expect that kids by the time they're seven, they're kind of done with that side of things. And then it's just pumping them full of stuff, right? And, and one of the things that really interests me that I've always said to teachers at any level And I'm sure all of you have used this, so it's nothing new or revolutionary. But what was worth behaving for in your lesson today? 
Um, and the other thing I often say to people, which I think is really transferable, and again, a lot of educators twitch at me when I talk about this, because I spend a bit of time when I was designing what we did at, at Grange, um, talking to advertising agencies. Because one of the things I was beginning to understand about marketing at that time was they were probably the most advanced people in the world at understanding how to hook kids into stuff. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but at one time, up until very recently, I think this is an extraordinary figure, 60% of qualified child psychologists were employed in the advertising and marketing sectors. So the issue, for, I'm not, by the way, I'm not morally condoning this stuff, right? This is really important. But this was partly what I was trying to allude to in the keynote. We mustn't censure where we think we can learn because we don't like what people stand for. You know, it's one of the things, for example, and I will mention his name, we can easily just pass Trump off and go, he's just a blip in history and he's this and that and the other. What really fascinates me as an educator is to climb inside how he's done it. That fascinates me. Doesn't mean I condone it or even like him. I don't. I mean, like, a, I find him abhorrent, but I kind of have to climb inside. How did he do that? Right. And so one of the things for me is, is around understanding marketing and understanding this stuff. And of course, what we know about the transition in marketing and advertising is 50 years ago, marketing and advertising was really passive. We had a consumer generation who were passive. So in other words, an advert would say, here's the cleaning product. This is what it does. It does it better than everybody else. Buy it, right? And it was, there was no interaction. It was just you go down and depending on what your budget was or you saw the ad, you liked the ad, you just, because it told you what it did, right? Passive marketing. What we've seen happen across politics, across product development, whatever it is over the last 20 or 30 years, is the growth of what I call the most interactive generation in history, the most active consumers we've ever known. And again, I'm just going to say this again, it doesn't mean I condone it or think it's a cool thing and everything's perfect because there are challenges in everything that's ever gone on in human history, right? But it's life. And they are the most interactive generation of consumers the world's ever seen. And in their lives outside the schoolroom, they expect their consumerism to be interactive. They expect to have a say. They expect to be able to give feedback. And they expect to be listened to. And I think one of the really interesting parallels for me about education is the active to passive that happens from early years to secondary education. And actually what's really fascinating about that is, is that as those young people become more and more sophisticated as active consumers, we close down their opportunity to be active consumers in their learning environment, which is where they spend most of their working day, right? Most of their living day, really, in a, in a classroom. And I think, therefore, there are a number of things for me. Firstly, we have to, and I'm not saying this is the answer, but I think we need to get better at it culturally in a secondary school, in, in high school. We need to build um, time for project-focused work where we get subject specialists to come together. Now, we have to appreciate that is really scary for some secondary teachers, right? And also, a lot of high school teachers will say, you know what, I'd love to do that, but the syllabus is so dense, I do not have the time. Well, we as leaders need to find the time. It doesn't have to be a day a week, half a day a week. It can be a day a month. It can be a couple of days as an enrichment program before every school holiday, right? But what we need to do is start to find time for these things to happen and throw it out there and go, let's just create a theme for a project. And let's just see if we can, the math department can work with humanities, can work with physical education, and let's just build something and see what happens, right? And I think that's one of the really important lessons for me as a principal, that, we, that we're under pressure as principals all the time. When we have an idea we love or something we really want to implement, we go all out. And there's nothing worse because a bit like a class of kids, a class of colleagues are not all at the same place. They are not all operating at the same point. And you have to differentiate leadership of adults as you differentiate leadership of students. And one of the things for me then is about the model of change, which I call contagion, right? And this is another thing because, again, we're so inclusive by nature as a profession. We just want everybody to come on. Come on. And in the meetings, even the worst of the wasp swallowers, we sit there going, 
And they never do, right? They tell you they do. And as soon as you shut the door, they go back to what they were doing. And the thing is, we obsess with consensus. And one of the things I think we need to be better at and having more courage at as leaders is letting people who are ready go and just saying to the people that aren't, okay, you carry on for now, but that doesn't mean we're not going to change the system. Because I think contagion is a really interesting thing. You get a couple of your teachers that just, you know, they get, you know those ones that you haven't even finished the idea and they're off. Boom! And But also, they're the same teachers who actually, after a couple of years of trying to be enthusiastic, get ground down and leave the profession because they're fed up of not being allowed to do stuff, right? And I think what we need to do is plant a couple of these ideas, go, right, if you're ready for that, go collaborate. I'll give you the time and space in the curriculum, once a term, once a month, whatever it might be. Go create it together, but the payback is you have to come back and share it, good or bad. And that's a challenge because teachers are rubbish at both. Teachers don't want to share stuff that went badly because they think it undermines their professional integrity and their perception as a professional because we're under pressure so often. So they don't like to share stuff that didn't work. But at the same time, the selflessness of teachers mean we're a profession that don't actually like to show off very much. That's really hard too. I mean, I do it. You know, look, the truth is, I was an unbelievably great principal. But what I say to people is it wasn't me. It was my colleagues. Because I'm selfless and I don't like to show off. Although really I do, just so you know. But, but the point is, right, we've got to let people go. But the buyback is honest conversation. They have to be honest about reflection, right? Because the principles can be shared. They just have to be done much slower and with a greater sensitivity to the pressures that are on those cultures and how deeply embedded they are. But I think that model of con contagion is a really powerful one. And then what tends to happen is it's, it's like contagion, right? A person catches cold, they sneeze. Two people catch cold. Two people sneeze, four people catch. And suddenly you build it. And in my own experience of seeing this across all levels of education, actually, through from college and university right the way down to early years, is it's the fastest model of moving people. Because actually by taking the pressure off and saying, look, you don't have to jump in until you're ready, absolves people. And often the blocker that then gets in the way isn't there anymore because they don't feel the pressure. But what they do start to do is go, I heard some really energetic stuff happening in, can I, don't tell the head but could you just tell me what you did, right? And suddenly people jump on board because the pressure and expectation is removed. So I hope that kind of answers the question. Keep the principles the same and be sophisticated about the way you manipulate people. Um, <laughs> okay, thank you. Next question, yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you, and it's still to this day the most painful thing that I reflect on. So I'm gonna go back to my story a bit and tell you, you know, like some of these great dramas and they tell it from a slightly different perspective. So I'm gonna do that, okay? And I haven't done, genuinely, I haven't done this in public before because I still find it difficult to reflect on. So as I said to you, the school was high flying and it was seven years in, right? And I knew to an extent, I thought, well, my job here is done because I'm a kind of innovator person. I'm not good in, you know, stability. That's just doesn't light my fire really. Um, and I kind of was also conscious that if I stayed longer in that school, I'd start innovating for my own enjoyment rather than what was strategically right for the school. And I urge you as leaders to think about that actually sometimes. It's a very deeply personal reflection, but I think it's one we all need to be very, very conscious of. That sometimes we don't do stuff just because it lights our fire and that we have to be really cognizant about whether it's right for the community and the school and, and what have you. Um, and I left and I was, you know, I still am, but I was really quite arrogant. I thought, well, well I've done it. The school's magnificent. And if I'm honest, looking back now with a slightly more mature mind, I do think I left the school in the best place I could. Because one of the things for me about being a school principal is you're only ever the custodian. It isn't yours. And actually the best any of us can hope for is if you're running in the four by 100 relay, that when it's your turn to hand the baton over, you do so in the best way you possibly can and realize that it's the next leader's job to take it on. And I remember on my last day, sitting in my office, which I'd cleared out, I bought a box of chocolates for my successor, new coffee grinder machine thing for black coffee only. Um, <laughs> And all the school plans and documents and preparation if the school was to be inspected, because I had none of that when I started. And I thought, you know, I can do that, right? And I walked out really quite self-congratulatory, -congrat like, look at me. 
the, the success is so lucky. I've touched this community. Like some sort of religious guy, I've touched this community. <laughs> They're lucky. Um, and I walked out and I thought, well, we've done it, you know, and this is sustainable and it's embedded and all this stuff. And it wasn't. It wasn't embedded and it wasn't sustainable. And it was too reliant on my energy and my vision and me. And when I reflect on that, what I realize is my greatest failing actually was that I was a crap leader because I hadn't shifted culture to the point where dependency wasn't necessary. I'd kidded myself because one of the things I now often say to leaders across every walk of life is actually the greatest trait of a leader is to do yourself out of a job because you've embedded and created a culture which really can live without you. And I'd kidded myself partly because over the previous two years, I'd spent quite a lot of time away from the school and the school had continued to function. I'd made the mistake of thinking it's about being present in the building every minute of every day and I don't need to do that anymore. So, But what hadn't happened was deep context hadn't been embedded throughout the community. And so when another head came in who was probably not thinking on the same page, if I'm honest, it fragmented far too easily and far too quickly. And I live with that every single day. And I know that if I could go back, A, I wouldn't have left when I left. But I think that's partly because I would have been more sophisticated about asking the right questions about whether I'd really transferred the context and the process and empowered the community. So thank you for exposing a massive wound. <laughs> and that's it. I'm going now. Goodbye. Um, Let's, let's have another nice one. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, mean, I think it's a really big question. I think it's a complex question. And if I'm honest with you, I don't think I have an easy solution for that. What I would say, though, and maybe this isn't answering the question around how do we transform political view and value and, and action. Um, is that I think to an extent, and maybe this sounds too cynical, I, don't, I, I just don't think we're going to be able to shift politicians because they've got different priorities. And in their own way, by the way, most of them do care and they do care about kids. Whatever side of the aisle they're on, whatever the pressures and their own priorities, they do. Most of them are parents, have been parents. Most of them care deeply about their communities. Most people, despite what we hear from, don't go into politics to become rich, famous, make money and have power. Most of them go into it at a, at a grassroots level because they want to transform lives and make a difference to people. And whether I agree with how they do that or not is irrelevant because they do, I think. But I do think the system is, a, is the problem. Um, you know, I drew, I truly believe that we should be accountable to politicians because politicians represent the people in a democracy and they represent the taxpayer. And therefore, as a profession and, and a, as the same way that public healthcare does, we have to be accountable. It's an absolute right that we're accountable. The problem I have is that politicians think they should control education. And that's where, for me, we have to find a new paradigm. You know, people talk a lot about Finland, and I don't want to talk about the Finnish system, because whilst I think it's brilliant, I think it's, a unique, to, it's unique to the context of Finland, right? And there are so many reasons why it's unique to the context of it. It's like here in Canada, where there's outstanding education in so many states and provinces, and other places in the world trot along, and they try and copy what you've done, and it never works, because it's unique to the context of the community. What I do think we can learn from Finland is the way that 20 years ago, their visionary leaders said we have to remove the short-termism of education policy from the system. We have to tool up the profession, and this is really important, I think, in response to what you were saying. So, as you all know, in order to be a qualified teacher in Finland, you have to be you have to have at least got a master's qualification, and that's not to show how clever you are. It's actually because what they wanted to do was school the profession in the ability to continuously action, research, interrogate, and challenge their own practice, right? And also that helps build public trust. And then what they did was they were able to remove the idea that it's the politicians that are going to pull the levers. And what they actually did that really is the secret to their success is that for 20 years they had a sustainable vision that was enacted on and built on and grown on and the profession grew in confidence and capability and it actually allowed the profession to self-govern right now that to me is something we need to try and find a way 
towards. Um, because in some ways, I think we need to move around politicians. Because here's another maybe challenging thought. I worry sometimes about our profession. And again, I hope no one thinks I'm bashing anybody here. Because I think unions aren't great at this. And I don't blame them. I get it. Right? Is what we're really good at, not just in education, but in most walks of life, is we tell the public about how dissatisfied we are with the system. Now, what you learn about great marketing, and, and at a political level too, is people can't get behind negative. It doesn't present an alternate view. It doesn't present an alternate model. It doesn't present something people can galvanize behind. So what we have to be better at as a profession isn't talking about why the system's not working and how bad it is. What we have to do is present a really sophisticated, productive, and positive view of how it could be. Because my view is most parents are to an extent dissatisfied with education, not with teachers and schools. They're dissatisfied with the system. I talk to thousands of parents in different roles around the world, and many of them are cognizant of the fact the system isn't working for their kid. It's interesting, by the way, though, because you know when you hear the media go, oh, the school systems are in freefall. I often say to parents, are you happy with your kid's school? And they'll go, oh, the system's in freefall, but we love our kid's school. And you think, well, where are the bad schools then? <laughs> it's amazing. But this is the thing, right? If we leave gaps for negativity and negative commentary, that's what happens. And perception becomes that way. What we have to be better at as a profession and I include all of us in that, whether we're part of unions, whether we're, we're teachers, principals, whether we're superintendents, whether we're administrators, is we have to produce an alternative constructive vision. Because my guess is parents would get behind us. It's no accident. Um, and I think this was a UK survey. Um, Ipsos Mori every year carry out what they call the trust index. And what they do is they survey um, the general public, on who are the most and least trusted professions. Now, the answers will not surprise you, right? Number one, in the 12 years this survey's been running in the UK, number one, every single year, are the medical profession, doctors and nurses. At the bottom, what won't surprise you is the two least trusted are politicians and the media, right? But consistently over the last 12 years, number two in the trust index in the poll are educators. Number two, despite the media, despite the battering we get from politicians, we are number two. And I don't think we exploit that enough because we're too worried that people think we're rubbish. And actually, I want to see us galvanize together and as a community present an alternative, constructive, positive vision. Because I think parents go, I want some of that. They influence politicians. But also, more importantly, you build a movement. And the thing about a movement and a revolution is it doesn't neatly start on a Thursday afternoon at four o'clock. It starts in coffee houses and bars where people who are passionate get together and they build a, a, a vision and they present an alternative and people get behind it and suddenly you have momentum and suddenly you have a movement and then you have change. And so I don't know, I don't even think that's an answer to your question, but I hope it kind of, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, okay, next question. Yes. Oh my goodness me, that's a great question. How do you, so the question for Corey's uh, recording is how do you take your good ideas and great practice and shift it into book writing? Uh, no clever answer. You uh, stop procrastinating. And I'm not, I don't know you personally, but you stop procrastinating. You stop going, I'm going to write a book on, uh, I'm going to start writing on Monday. And then Monday, it's like gym membership. Monday comes, you actually have had a really bad day. And I know I should go, but I'll go tomorrow because I've earned the right to rest tonight because I've had such a tough day. And then suddenly, because I have that, and look at me, you can see, right? Look, look at this. This is not a gym bod right here, okay? This is a man who is brilliant at procrastinating about physical health. Um, what you have to do is you, you have to find time. And you don't have to think about it as grandiosely as writing a book. When I wrote my first book, I just wanted to use it as a cathartic experience to get down my ideas before I forgot them. And actually what I found was it was a deeply spiritual experience because a lot of stuff was going on in my world. And the minute you write it down, it's a bit like, you know, if you ask a student to teach another student a skill, it's the point at which they really embed their knowledge and understanding. Well, for me, 
that was the process. It was an extraordinary epiphany because as I started just pouring out the stuff that I'd done and believed, it started to make me think about it in a more intellectual and different way, which actually gave me a greater sense of objective ownership, if that makes sense. So I would say to you, you've got to find time, but also people write in different ways. So if go back to Ken Robinson, right? Just so you know, and if you've read and loved Ken's books, Ken snatches moments on planes where he gets his laptop out and he'll write a bit and then park it. I can't do that. I can't write that way. I need to have space and time where the kids are out. No one's talking to me. And I I create, you know, like we all do, we create our learner spaces. Make sure you know what that is. Make sure you find time. And actually what you'll find is it's addictive, but it's starting that's the problem, like gym membership. You go to the gym, you're on the running machine, you lift some weights, and you actually go, I feel better for that. And then you go through a burst where you do go regularly because actually you enjoy it more than you think, right? Just have day one. Don't be frightened of the blank page and start. Don't think you're writing a book. Just pour out your ideas and then mold it later. That's what I'd say to you. Okay. Next question. Yes, sir. How do you keep the orders of the 80s wings <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I'd be managing a soccer team. Yeah. Your answer is going to be, uh, you surround yourself with the best people and it carries on and, and you're cheering for them after your exit. But my thing is, what, what five or six things might you, might you do for the, for the new entrance into, mm-hmm. your, into your position? Well, the first thing um, I would talk about um, in detail is succession planning. And by the way, it's something sports teams are really lousy at, right? They ditch a coach and they don't really have a plan. They just go for the next highest profile coach. They don't think about whether that coach is actually going to fit the culture, understands the culture of that team. You know, it happens in soccer. The greatest example in English football I can give you is what's happened at Manchester United, right? Alex Ferguson, unbelievable, one of the greatest coaches in history. He leaves and they just go for the high profile people. And those people don't understand the culture that was created over 20 plus years. And therefore, it's just one disaster after another, right? And so for me, when I look back at on my very personal story. This is also true. And I'll tell you this bit because I don't want to sound, having heard the context, I don't want people to think this sounds like, oh, actually, I don't really blame myself for this, right? I had, in our early years team, I'd appointed um, a young, dynamic, brilliant woman who had been the head of the early years team in our school. She'd only been teaching four or five years, but I knew that she was the right person to take over from me. And I knew that two or three years before I left. And so I'd really onboarded her in everything that I was doing. I would go to her, talk to her, get counsel from her, share ideas, ask her for ideas. And I, in my own head, had softly started to build her as my successor. And this is true, and I don't blame, this isn't my fault. When the governing board knew I was going to leave, I did two things, by the way. The first was I said, I won't leave till you get the right person, because I wasn't going to a start date job. So I said, don't feel under pressure, get the right person. And when you've got the right person, I'll go. And the second thing I said was, please appoint her. Now, the interesting thing was this. She didn't have the experience. She didn't have the, the administrative knowledge to be a school principal, right? But what we were doing ran in her blood. And she was a brilliant, sophisticated, emerging young leader. And what I also had were two assistant heads that had been in that school for 30 plus years. So what they didn't know, most people had forgotten more than they knew about, um, you know, they just knew everything. And they were both really generous and had said to me again, as I'd built this plan, we will support her because neither of us are ambitious enough to want the job ourselves. We will help her plug those gaps and teach her over the first couple of years of her tenure. And away we go. Now, in the British education, in the English education system at that time, it was illegal for an incumbent principal to be involved in recruiting their successor. Yeah, you weren't allowed because of equal opportunities. And what happened was the local government board appointed their guy and they didn't appoint her. But there is a happy ending to this story because I left that job nearly 12 years ago. She has just been appointed as the permanent head teacher. And she will transform that school back again. But the point about that is, my God, what a waste of 12 years. 
right? She was re- she was the right person. So I think we need to spend more time on succession planning. We need to identify in our schools the people that have the real potential, irrespective of age and experience, because we all know them, right? You all know those people in your schools. And we need to be far more active about developing those qualities. And if you can get a core group, you build like a stick of uh, writing through a stick of rock, a real sense and understanding. You know, I don't know whether at Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to work out, but in the short term, he had an interesting impact because he walked in and where Mourinho had no idea of context, he got it. And for the first few weeks, he was, the team went berserk, right? Um, I think his problem is he's not had the scaffold in terms of leadership skill. I think he gets the culture and that's why the marriage is, is so important. So I don't know if it's five things, but that certainly to me, that idea of being really obsessed with building a continuity and a succession plan is the best way I can think of to create that sustainable approach once you've gone. Legacy. Thank you. Uh, next question. Yes. Okay. So yeah, that was, that's about it. That's about it. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the art of saying nothing and making it sound like it means something. That was me. Um, the first, so the first stage was really, do you know your students? Do you know their context, their background? And of course, the follow-up question to that is, what systems and processes do we have in place to make that happen and be tangible? So it's not just, oh, you know, uh, I know that uh, Shania's mum and dad have just split up. And you have that conversation in the staff room, right? Or uh, Mrs. Tabitha's having another. And by the way, you know, this is just an aside. Do you know how, it, and it happens in all of our schools, you know those families, and let's be, we can be honest with each other here. You know those families you can't wait to see the back of? We all have one in every school. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in at least one, right? You know, and, and what these people do, and I'm convinced of it, is they breed just to spite you. You've had six of the little darlings and you're sat there as you get towards summer and you're going, this is it. This is it. It's over. Let's, let's have a fuddle because that's what we do to celebrate as a team. We're not imaginative. Right? Let's have a fuddle to celebrate anything. Birthdays, we have cakes. End of term, we have cakes. End of the year, we might have cakes and a glass of wine. Um, but that's it, right? And, and you, you get to number six, they're going, they're going. And then usually one of the dinner supervisors, because they're the people with the ear to the ground closest, they go, oh no, she's pregnant again. And you think they've done that just to spite us. Anyway, the three, I don't know why I even told you that, story, but there you go. So, but that's the content. But meaningful. And, and then there's the principle. It's how do we create a system to ensure that the, our teachers can respond to that? They understand what they're looking for, what that really means. Stage two then is where I think the real opportunity for innovation and development of contextual practice comes in. Because the question is, so how are we designing the learning to meet those known needs? And then the third part is how can you evidence that it's working? So you turn it from a three-point plan into a cyclical process. And I think as a principle, rather than going through sometimes really complex performance management programs and target systems, wouldn't it be just so much more powerful if you just regularly could have those conversations with your teachers and they know it's coming? Tell me about the context of your kids. What are you doing to meet that context? How do you know it's working? And I think if we were able to do that, that creates real accountability, but it also allows teachers professional trust and freedom because we're not micromanaging. We're actually asking them to be professional about their process. Anyway, I hope that, that, so that one. Right, next question. You had a question here, yeah. Okay, um, this could well be the last answer. I hope that's all right with people because... It's a big story, but are people happy to listen to the story? Is that okay? Right, so I'll do that. So I went into this school um, habitually failing. It had been failing in, uh, for 10 years. It had had eight school principals in that 10 years. It had had no school principal for nearly two years because the last one had gone off after a breakdown and the process is you have to go through a process where you can finally sign them off. And so the day I arrived, this is true, I knew they were keeping a book on how long I'd last. And I remember walking in and I was naive. I mean, I think I had two characteristics that experienced leaders need to remind themselves on. Two really powerful characteristics of a new leader. You're arrogant enough to believe you're right and ignorant enough to not have any understanding of what can happen to you if you get it wrong. Those to me are the greatest, the greatest two characteristics I would say to you as a leader. Right? Um, but I walked in, I remember my first meeting. 
and I'd been grilled by the local government who said, the only way this school will survive is if you get the academic grades up. You need to tell them they're failing, blah, blah, blah. And I knew the previous eight school principals had started their conversation the same way, and that's why their bodies were now buried around the grounds. I remember walking in, and it wasn't because of courage or vision or expertise. Again, lucky. Op you know, I said to you at the beginning, my life has been lucky happenings, right? This was one. I'd just been to Disney with my family in Orlando, and we'd had an amazing holiday. And I remember walking into my first meeting as the principal and saying to them, how do we turn our school into somewhere as exciting as Disneyland? Now, that shocked them because they just weren't expecting that from the new principal. I mean, I didn't have a bloody answer to it. But what happened next was remarkable. Happy coincidences. One of my, I had, I had um, you know the alpha teacher in your school? at least one. You know that person who is really in charge, or they think they're really in charge. You know the one I mean. They have the ability to suck the enthusiasm out of a newly qualified teacher within a week. You know those people, right? They're, they're in every school. And they also think they are the only one with wisdom, knowledge, and experience, right? I had one. In my school, it happened to be a guy. His name was John. I twitch every time. Anyway, I did this thing. I said, how do you tell us going to Disneyland? John, very helpfully, constructively, supportively of the new head, said, this is a quote, why would we want to do that? I hate bloody Disneyland. That was useful. I didn't have an answer. I didn't have an answer for him. I didn't. I wasn't a sophisticated leader. I was panicking at this point and the imposter syndrome had really, I was ready to leave, right? And then one of my newly qualified teachers, I hadn't appointed her, she was a pre but she was, you know, those gloriously new young teachers who are just full of enthusiasm and they have that, that thing about naivety. They don't know the rules. They don't know the politics. And they're just so glad to be there, right? She was there. And she didn't know that if, if John pronounced, you said nothing. So she went. She said, how can you say that? I've just been to Disney with my boyfriend. It's amazing. We loved it so much. We're going to get married there. Well, you can imagine John's face at this point, right? <laughs> and like everyone else in the room is going, <laughs> but she plowed on. And what she said next was really interesting, almost by accident. She said, one of the things we noticed is if you think about Disney, it should be a place kids actually hate. Because they're made to queue for hours, which is something kids hate doing, for an experience that lasts three minutes. She said, but one of the observations both my fiancé and I made... <laughs> Sorry, wrong hand. Um, that's why I've got two. It just, it's um, I'm married. Um, uh, I'm not. Anyway... <laughs> What she said was, our observation was the most, most of the tantrums we saw at Disney were the adults. You will have had that experience. I have. I have had to queue for three and a half hours to meet a fake Nordic princess. <laughs> and when we met her, her wig was wonky. And here's the punchline, but I've managed to let it go. Um, I know, I know, I know. Pre-planned jokes, they always work. They land every time, don't they, right? Um, but what she meant by that was, of course, was really, that suddenly became a really interesting question. How do we create an environment where kids are prepared to do really tough, hard stuff, but they feel so empowered and so excited by it, they'll rock up every day and want to be involved? It's a great question. I didn't know it was a great, but it's a great question, right? Anyway, as a result of that, long story short, because I am running out of time, um, we did three major things. First of all, before we started the three actual things we, we evolved and changed, we asked the fundamental question I showed you in the keynote. What do we want our students to look like as human beings when they leave us at 11? Because up till then, for the previous 10 years, most people had been operating in our school under survival mode. Everything had been reactive. Do this because we need to plug that gap. Now, that's most teachers' experiences in most schools. And it's exhausting. And it isn't particularly energizing. Because reactive change is really energy sapping and it's demoralizing. So what I did on that day, and it was easy to do because you're in a school with nothing to lose, right? I shifted the axis from being about reactive conversations to proactive conversations. And it shifted a lot. And we started to evolve a real clarity about our school was called Grange. 
and we kept coming back to this thing, what do Grange children look like? What do we want Grange children to be? And I remember going to see a couple of my uh, high school, uh, secondary school principals and going to look around the school and meetings as the new principal of the feeder school and saying to them, um, I'm going to create nightmare students for you. Because I want them to know their own mind, know how they learn best, and have the ability to constructively and politely challenge your teachers. And I said, if I get this right, I want to come back in three or four years' time and walk around the school with you, and I want you to point out the kids without knowing, because a principal often doesn't know, they're too high up the right? I want you to point out the kids you think went to Grange. And we did that three or four years later, and he got every single one right. And he said, we just know. So the three things we did to get from there to there. Stage one, I was passionate. I am always and will always be passionate about early years practice. Um, if I'm going to be controversial here, I don't think the rest of us um, respect early years practice enough. Because I think the finest models of learning at any level of education occur in the best run early years units. If I was a university lecturer or a secondary school teacher, I would be finding the best early years setting in my community, taking my colleagues there and saying, how can we do some of what they do? just how I feel. But for me, the reason for that is, is because learning is deeply experiential and contextual. And there's no accident for me that children learn at an accelerated rate in that experience. So I wanted to create something like that. And of course, a lot of what early years kids do, both in their play and in their learning, is through role play. And so I thought, let's do that right the way through to the, the age of 11. And our kids were in a very insular community. So they got the idea. You know how you turn, you have to turn the negatives into positives, right? So we were in a really uh, insular community. One of those places where you could only be a citizen or a local if you were born there. Even if you'd lived there 40 years, you, you're just a visitor, right? It was what insular, very insular facing, very working class. The aspiration to, was to work in the local supermarket. That was as high as it got, right? That was the pinnacle. Cause if you were there, you could get your kids jobs there. That was. So they got community. So stage one was we did role play on a mass level. We created what we called the Grangeton Project, which was a town which over the years the children learned to run themselves. Our town had a political system. It had a television studio, a radio station, a cafe, shop, museums, a nightclub, anything you'd find in a normal community. And what we did was we went out into the community and rather than the teachers pretending they knew how to train kids to run this stuff, we got people in those professions to come in for nothing. So the BBC trained our kids in media. They taught them how to run a television station and a radio studio. Our local member of parliament every year would take the kids for three days on a residential down to Westminster, the heart of British politics, to learn about representation. Everything was authentic, right? And the power of that was amazing. Of course, what we were really doing was teaching kids why literacy and numeracy and science and history were important, not for an exam, but because they immediately applied those skills in real context. And so they became desperately hungry for knowledge. Stage two, which I don't have time to go through in real detail now, so I apologize, was we then had the courage, and this is what I mean about evolution. I had no idea where this was going to end up, and it was an evolutionary process, right? A lot of us thought that was it. It was enough. But then our teachers started to question the very design and structure of curriculum. And so we evolved a curriculum that was basically based on the learning we got from the Grangeton Project, which had been mainly an, um, an extracurricular program. But we'd realized the power project learning, collaborative learning, across year groups, thematic. So we actually stripped out subjects completely and built a curriculum around four core themes, communication, enterprise, culture, and well-being. And well-being was split into three subsections, physical well-being, social well-being, spiritual well-being. And we then designed project work that skillfully wove the national curriculum in through themes. So core subjects headed up three of those areas, communication, literacy, Enterprise, numeracy, culture, science, right? And then well-being would look up, but, but then you'd knit the entire curriculum through that work. Now, you can imagine the levels of engagement and skills development, knowledge build in the kids because it was deeply, richly contextual was remarkable, but that wasn't enough. Our kids were poor kids from communities where they thought universities were for posh people. So how do you get kids in that community to believe that university is for them. You build your own university. So on Fridays, our kids didn't come to school. They came to Grangeton University. 
where we ran a range of 40 to 50 selective courses. And every term, they would choose two options, and they would run those courses for a semester, at the end of which they'd graduate, and then the following term, they'd take on two more models, right? And we, we turn around to the teachers and the staff and the parents who we built relationships. By the way, can you imagine turning around to your teachers and saying, on a Friday, you're not teaching what you usually have to teach. We want you to design a course in something you're just passionate about, anything you want that you think kids would like to learn. So we had teachers that performed in folk bands. And so she, came, she designed a whole course in the history of folk music. We had a teacher that was passionate about particular sports and he would do particular sports. We had a mother who, and she was one of those mums, you know how often in areas of social debt, parents have really low self-esteem. Every time she came in to see me, are you all right if I go on for two or three more minutes? Every time she came in to see me, she would start the conversation with, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Gerver, I know I'm only a hairdresser. So we said, we'd love you to come and teach the kids hairdressing. So she did. Not only did the kids go, this is amazing but her self-esteem went through the roof and her engagement in the school became deeply powerful because suddenly she felt like a valued member of the community, right? And we did all this stuff. We managed to hook into the New English Contemporary Ballet who happened to be based in the city next to ours. And I said, you know, part of your remit and public funding is to encourage dance and to eventually, because most of the New English Contemporary Ballet at the time was made up of foreign dancers, and one of their remits was eventually to sway the balance of the majority dancer. I said, the best way you can do that is to get into our school and teach our kids contemporary dance. We ended up with a former male principal from the Ballet Rombert training our kids in modern contemporary. By the way, just so you know, he was heterosexual, which was important to my female staff. And on Fridays, my female staff started coming in smelling fragrant and looking very different. <laughs> I hated this guy. If he'd been gay, it would have been fine. But he was treading on my turf and that hurt. Um, and we built this university. Right, so kids came and they did. So those were the three stages, right? Contextualized learning through having a real sense of citizenship and um, experiential and contextual learning through the town. The evolution of a curriculum that I had no plan that we were going to evolve, but my God, it was successful and underpinned everything. And stage three was the university. Now, it had a profound impact on our students, our parents, our staff. And I believe in our own context and model, it was a brilliant, brilliant thing that my team had evolved. And I just want to finish with one story about one student. So I told you about the political system. And I don't know about you, but the biggest majority of kids, I think, in most schools are what I call invisible kids. We tend to focus on the really bright ones or the ones that are really troubled. And most days, the majority of our school population go through the day doing what they're asked in the way they're asked to do it, and they're invisible. And actually, maybe, maybe this is a sweeping statement, but often for me, um, a lot of our invisible tids, kids tend to be girls. They just get their head down, do what they're asked, get through it. Not, they're, not, they're enjoying themselves, but that's what they do. Um, I think it's because boys just want to be praised for everything. It's like at home, you know, if I empty the dishwasher, I go up to my wife and go, I have emptied the dishwasher and I expect praise. And she's run the entire household and everything else forever. Never says anything. I have emptied the dishwasher. I have changed the light bulb. Put the medal on my chest. I am husband of the year. Um, and with the political system, so we did, like a lot of schools do now, right? We held elections where we, you'd have a premier, a prime minister would be elected, and then they'd elect a cabinet, and then they'd control a budget. And all the different enterprises in the town, by the way, had to be answerable to the council, right? And if they wanted a loan to build or expand, they had to put a business case. These are kids under 11. They had to put a business case to the governing council to evidence how, if they got £100 towards building something else in their business, it would actually impact on the social delivery delivery for the other students. Right. So anyway, uh, year one comes around, we're talking to the staff, um, we say to the kids, right, the oldest kids, because it was a thing, if you're in the top year, you can apply to become prime minister, anyone can stand, you'll have hustings, you'll kiss babies, you'll make speeches. And again, unsurprisingly, I think, because of the gender specifics at that age, nine out of the 10 people that put themselves forward were boys. And they were, I mean, like, you know, they were Trumpian. They were promising stuff they couldn't deliver. Every child should have a packet of sweets every day. We shall ban lessons. 
on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, but we'll keep the university on Fridays because we like that. Just rubbish, right? And what happened at the last minute was one of my teachers came to see me and said, you know Beth, and Beth was an invisible child. Beth is deeply passionate about the environment. She's pol political. She needs to stand. But it took convincing because she didn't want to be in the public eye. But we got her to do it, right? And she stood up and she gave the speech on election day and she blew everyone else out the water. Deep, passionate, committed, intelligent. Anyway, she won 98% of the vote. <laughs> She became our first mayor, our first PM. She was amazing. And, you know, I lost touch. It was a great story. And then a couple of years ago, I met Beth. And this is the truth of the power of the story. So this kid from a working class community in the middle of nowhere had discovered the power of politics and democracy and citizenship. First stage was, in her teenage years, she became the first representative from our region for the European uh, Youth Parliament. She then went on to LSE, the London School of Economics, which is probably the finest political training ground in the UK. And she studied there. And now she's working in Westminster, working her way up to eventually become a member of parliament. Beth Morton, remember the name, because she's going to be prime minister of the United Kingdom one day, and she will heal the problems we have right now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs>